The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Uh, if you have a Bible this morning, open up with me, please, to First um, Samuel. We'll be in First Samuel chapter 6 and the very first part of chapter 7. First uh, Samuel chapter 6 and the first two verses of verse 7. It, does anybody need a Bible, by the way? Lewis is back there ready to bring you a Bible. Just raise your hand if you need one. Anybody? Lewis, I don't see anybody raising their hand, so thank you, brother. Um, if you did grab one of those, by the way, on the way in, you'll find it on page one, 271. It's where you'll find First Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to jump right into our text. I titled this message this morning, Only a Holy God. And I want to jump right into our text this morning. And so follow along, if you will, as I read. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the Lord to Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the land lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should, your, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left, 
And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden images that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a very great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time now. And we pray, Lord Jesus, in these moments that you would use this time in the hearing of your word. We pray that your spirit would accompany the proclamation of the word to give us, uh, would it, that he would illumine the word for us, that we would see it and understand it. But that, not that we would understand it as just some ancient text, but we would see it, Father, and understand how this applies even in our lives today. And so, Father, use this time to mold us and shape us into the men and women that you would have us be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you're a note-taker, I've titled this morning's message, We Worship a Holy God. We worship a holy God. And I want to make four points from our passage this morning. And like last week, each of these points, just a single word. Uh, the first point I want to uh, mention today is that of repentance. Repentance. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 6. Over the, past of the, over the course of the past couple of weeks, we've learned that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines. It was taken to the city of Ashdod. And there the Lord afflicted the people of Ashdod with tumors. And so they shipped the ark off uh, to the city of Gath. The people of Gath receive it. And what, what do you know? They, they start having uh, the judgment of God on them. And so they ship the ark off to the city of Ekron. Um, and then we learned at the end of last week's message that in, that in Ekron, God was also judging the people there with tumors, with death. 
Now in our text today, we learn that the ark, it's actually been in the country of the Philistines for a total of seven months. So this, this isn't an overnight affair. This is not happening from one day to the next or even one week to the next. Seven months. And in fact, what we learn from the Bible is that when God is at work in the lives of people, He generally works in their lives over a period of time. Because God, God doesn't work on a quick fix mentality. God generally works slowly as He shapes individual, individuals and as He shapes history. And so now after these seven months of plagues and tumors, the Philistines, they finally they've come into this dreadful realization that something needs to change. As I was, as I was thinking that and meditating on that, I, I began to wonder I said, about us. I wonder, beloved, does that type of hard-heartedness, does it sometimes characterize us? Does it characterize me? Do, does God have to work in my life for a period of months before I begin to realize how I've grieved God with my sin? You know, how long do we sometimes do we persist in our sin before we finally come to our senses? How long do we continue in sin while we blame our circumstances on everyone and everything around us and we fail to see the person in the mirror? How long does it take us to come to a point of genuine repentance? For the Philistines, it's been a long seven months of suffering. And so in verse 2, they finally call for the priests and diviners. That would be their own priests. They're not calling for the priests of Israel. They're calling for the priests of their own people. And they ask them, what, what do we need to do? But notice this in the passage. Even though they're asking the priests and the diviners what they need to do, they've already decided that the ark needs to go. Do you see that there in verse 2? Look there with me. They ask, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They're not asking if they should send the ark away. They're just asking, you know, how we should send it away. Should we send something with it, in other words? Now, to the credit of the Philistine priests and diviners, they rightly suggest not sending it away empty. That that is, don't send it away by itself. In verse 3, they say, By all means, return him a guilt offering. That him is a reference to the Lord. And so basically the Philistine priests and diviners, they're telling the people, their people, they're saying we've been guilty before the Lord God of Israel, and so we need to return a guilt offering with the ark when we return it. And if they do that, they continue in verse 3, they said, then you will be healed and you will know, or it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So those first three verses to, to, to recap, for the past seven months, the Philistines have they've been experiencing the judgment of God because they offended the holy God of Israel. And so the Philistines, they're, they're now told that they need to return the ark. And along with that ark, they need to return a guilt offering for their sin. So, so that's where we're at. But that raises a natural question in the minds of the Philistines. In verse 4, they ask, well, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? Now, it's a sensible question. It's a fair question. You know, maybe, maybe you've offended somebody in your past uh, and you don't know exactly, what, what do I need to do to make things right? You, you don't want, in your effort to make things right, you don't want to do something 
silly and that, that ultimately makes things worse, right? And so you might ask somebody, well, wh- how do you think I should handle this? What, what do you think I should do? I, I, I want to make things right. That's where the Philistines are. That's why they're asking their priests and their divine, what, what do you think we should do? And I would argue that by virtue of God's common grace, which God gives freely to all people regardless of our background, regardless of whether we're Christians or not Christian, God gives His common grace to everyone that these pagan priests and diviners, they actually speak wise words to the Philistines. At the end of verse 5, or excuse me, end of verse 4 and, and through verse 5, they are told, quote, to offer five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off you and your gods and your land. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read the exact nature of their guilt offering, the things that they were to offer, I, I had some questions, right? I was like, what? You know, this, this seems a little bit strange. You know, first, first, you know, why the golden tumors? That, that's a fairly easy answer. I'll, I'll say more about that in just a moment. But, you know, keep reading the passage in golden mice, right? Where, where do the golden mice come in? I mean, if, we've been, if you've been reading through First Samuel, this is the first mention of mice, um, anywhere, we've, we've read about tumors in, in chapter uh, 4 but, and 5, but we haven't read about mice. And so what's up with the mice? And as I thought about it, um, as I did some reading and some studying on this, a couple of possible explanations for where, where do these mice come into play. First, first possible explanation. It, it's beyond any doubt uh, that mice, or some of your translations actually have the word rats there, um, that mice have been carriers of any number of diseases throughout history. This, this is just without question. Mice, for example, were instrumental in the spread of the Black Death in the 14th century. Fleas lived on those mice. The fleas would bite the mice. Um, the flea would get infected. The flea would jump off the mouse and jump on a person and bite the person, thus infecting the person. Um, in a four-year period in the 14th century, four-year period, 200 million people died. Okay, that puts COVID in a bit of perspective, right? Four years, 200 million people and mice were largely to blame for it. So one possible explanation is what's happening here in 1 Samuel is that the people, the people of the Philistines, that they they thought the God of Israel was using mice to spread these tumors. That's certainly a possibility. And a second possible explanation is that these tumors forged large lumps right underneath the skin. And so you had this bulbous, if you will, thing on your skin that perhaps looked somewhat like a mouse underneath your skin. Again, a possible explanation. Now, we, we could talk all day about possible explanation, but what's important for us to understand is this. The mice were somehow associated, or at least in the minds of the Philistines, the mice were associated with this plague of tumors. And so they're told to offer five golden tumors and five golden mice, the, the five being a number that corresponds to the number of major cities, the number of lords of the Philistines. The overall point I want us to recognize here is this. We're all familiar with that phrase, you know, let the sentence fit the crime, right? We've, we've heard that phrase before. And so, so you're not going to put somebody in jail for 40 years for jaywalking, 
At least I, I hope you wouldn't put somebody in jail for 40 years for jaywalking. But nor are you just going to give somebody a good stern talking to for mass murder, right? We, we want the sentence to fit the crime. Repentance, likewise, should fit the sin. Okay? Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Suppose I commit a private thought sin. Okay? Just me. It's between me and the Lord. And my, it's in my heart. Suppose I covet my neighbor's last vacation trip. Okay? Uh, you know, I spend the next couple of days wishing I had the resources to go on a vacation like that. And, and to be clear here, what I'm suggesting, it's all happening in my mind. I'm not like posting snarky comments online or anything. This is just, in my mind, I'm just wishing I could do that. And in essence, what I'm doing is I'm doubting God's goodness and the provisions He's given me. Okay? I'm sinning before God, to be clear, because I'm doubting God's goodness in my own life. Um, but it's a private sin. I'm not saying anything to anybody. It's, it's happening in my heart. So here's the question. When, when God convicts me of my sin, how do I repent of that sin? Should, should I go to my neighbor and say, you know, listen, I'm super sorry. I've been coveting your, your uh, trip and I wish I, I wish I had the resources to go on a trip like that and I'm, I, I, I've been coveting it. Can, will you forgive me? Not, probably not necessary to go to your neighbor. It's a, it's a private sin. Uh, it's between me and the Lord, if you will. And so when it comes time to confess, I repent and confess to the Lord and He forgives me. Now, side note to that, by the way, if you notice that your particular, whatever your particular private sin is, okay, if you notice that that private sin is like a regular recurring habit, so it's not just your neighbor's trip, then it's this other thing or it's this other thing. It's something that, that's constantly coming up in your heart. Then it's probably a good idea for you to take a trusted brother or a trusted sister and say, listen, I've been struggling with this. Pornography is a great example of this, by the way. A great example of this. You know, we... we you know, those who mess around with pornography rarely do it just like one time. It's something that, you know, some people, well, pornography is just private. I'm not really hurting anybody. No, no, no. You're, you're hurting somebody and you're hurting yourself with that. And so you, you, you need to open up the, um, your, your field of who you're talking to with that because these private things, these private sins are things that we call private sins. If it's something I'm regularly struggling with, it's something that will actually warp my soul if I don't bring it into God's light. And so we need to bring these things into God's light. So that's one thing. So we have a private sin. But let, let's consider, suppose it's a public sin. Suppose after the service today, while we're all sitting here, we gather, we're talking with one another, we're encouraging one another, we're laughing, we're joking with one another. Um, you look up here at the front, and Mary and I are talking, and I, we're in a heated argument. And I say some rather unkind things and uncharitable things to my wife, just very boldly and very loudly. In, in short, I'm sinning against my wife, okay? What does repentance look like in that situation? Well, again, first and, first and foremost, my sin is a sin against God. And so my sin um, is, is, well, all sin is ultimately a sin against God. And so I need to confess my sin before God. That, that, I hope that goes without saying. But second, I've said some rather unkind things to my wife. Number one, she deserves an apology from me. But more than that, she deserves a confession that I have sinned against her. She needs to know that, that it wasn't just, hey, I had a bad day. No, I sinned against you. And I would say finally on that, because I did so in a public forum, because I said all of those things in front of all of you, 
Not because I'm the pastor, but because I'm your brother in Christ. And so I would hold you to the same standard here. I need to acknowledge my guilt before you. I need to say to the congregation, listen, I, you know, last week I really, I blew it. I've, I've already confessed my sin to God. I've confessed my sin to my wife. But I want you to know I want to confess my sin before you. And I know I've received forgiveness from God, but I confess before you. Here, here's the point. The nature of my sin determines the nature of my confession and repentance. Okay? That's what we see happening here in 1 Samuel. The nature of their repentance is in keeping with their sin. Their sin is what caused the plague of tumors. So in their repentance, they're acknowledging their sin by taking or making golden tumors to bring to God. So their their repentance matches their sin. Do you see that? you see what I'm talking about there? When we fail to properly acknowledge and repent of our sin, I would argue it's ultimately a form of pride and hardness of heart. It's why the Philistines here, it's, it's why the priests rather than the diviners among the Philistines, why they encourage them against hardening their hearts as the, as the Egyptians had done, as Pharaoh had done. And just, and just a, a quick aside here, by the way, to this idea of public confession, let's, let's not, some of you might be thinking, well, David, when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, he, he said in Psalm 51, against you, Lord, and only you have I sinned. Now, I would say yes and amen to that. Uh, David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah was ultimately a sin against the Lord. But David is not saying anything about the nature of our public confession. And by the fact that he wrote that psalm publicly, to be sung publicly, it is a public confession, right? So, anyways, back to 1 Samuel. In verses 7 and following, the Philistines are told what, what looks like a bizarre story to us. You know, get two milk cows, get a new cart, put the ark of God on that cart, along with another box that has all the golden tumors, the golden mice, and send it on its way to Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is a city in Israel. But they weren't to put anybody else on the cart. They were just supposed to you know, point, the, point those cows in the direction of Beth Shemesh and let the cows carry it along. And if the cows, if they actually make it to Beth Shemesh, they say, then, then we know that this was really the hand of God was against this. And if it doesn't, then it, just, it was just a coincidence. And so the men do exactly what they're told. They send off the cows in the cart. And we're told in verse 12 that the cows, quote, went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left and the lords of the philistines went after them as far as the border of beth shemesh and so here we see the repentance of the people of philistia now to point number two rejoicing rejoicing in verses 13 and following the people of beth shemesh they're they're they're, they're out in the valley as they're reaping the wheat wheat harvest and lo and behold they look up and what they see this they see these two cows coming with a cart and on that cart they see the ark of god and so we're told at the end of verse 13 that they rejoiced to see it my guess is that's somewhat of an understatement by the way uh you know the people of israel have been without the ark of god for more than half a year they, they were probably over the moon to see the ark but what is that rejoicing what does it look like It looks a lot like worship. What we see happening there in, in chapter 6, it looks a lot like worship. 
The cart comes to stop in this field of this guy named Joshua. Uh, there's a great stone there in that field. And so they, they break up the wood from the cart. They make firewood out of it. They take the two cows and they make a burnt offering to the Lord. That's worship. Okay, now we don't, we don't do that, right? None of us, I don't think, showed up in a cart and broke it up and we don't have cows up here uh, burning. But this, in, in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, this was worship. That's what they're doing. And so the Levites, they take the ark and the box filled with the golden figures. They set them up on this great stone. And in verse 15, we're told a second time that the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. Beloved, it's a scene of great rejoicing. It's a scene of great worship. And so, the Philistines, they had been the ones who were repenting of their sin, of taking the ark in the first place. But now that the ark has been returned, that plays a super important role for the Israelites. You see, the return of the ark signifies to the people of Israel that they are now being restored into a right relationship with God. The presence of God has returned to the people of Israel. And beloved, it is always a good thing to celebrate the knowledge that we're in a right relationship with God. It's always a good thing to, re- to, to re- rejoice in a restored relationship. This is why we worship Jesus. This is why we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus, through His death, burial, and resurrection, took our sin upon Himself. We had been estranged from God. By the way, far longer than seven months. Our sin had put us at odd with God. Through our sin, we had offended a holy God. But through, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, He took our sacrifice. He took the penalty that we owe. He bore our penalty on that cross. And so when we turn from our sin, when we repent, when we trust in Jesus, the penalty that we rightly owe has been applied to Jesus' account and we're given new life. And beloved, that is something worth rejoicing in. You know, we might, we might be tempted, we read these ancient stories of the Israelites and we might read them and think, you know, good for them. I'm, I'm, I'm glad the ark got returned. But if we do that, we completely miss the point of the text. When we read about these ancient Israelites being restored into a relationship with God, we ought to read that as a foretaste of what is to come. Their restoration was just a a dim glimpse of what was to come, of the greater sacrifice that Jesus made to restore us into a relationship with God. Beloved, let's rejoice in that. But even as we rejoice in that, even as we rejoice in the restoration of God's people, our passage still shows us that sin remains. Even though we're no longer under condemnation of sin, sin still remains. Which takes us to point number three. And here we see God's wrath. God's wrath. This is verses 19 through 21. The people of God, they've experienced this restoration of sorts. But they're still a deeply sinful people. 
We read in verse 19, And the Lord, says He, but it's the Lord there, And the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them. And the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. At first glance, we might read that and think, you know, why did the Lord kill 70 people for looking at the ark, right? I mean, that's a fair question to ask. Why, why would God kill 70 people for looking at the ark? But a closer look at the text reveals us that something much more sinister, sinister is happening here. You see, they're not just looking at the ark, but they're looking upon the ark. Or to say it in even clearer terms, what's being described here in these verses is though those men, they were actually looking inside the ark. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned uh, that Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, I told you, I said the, the, the depiction of the ark in that movie was actually a very accurate depiction of what it, what it actually looked like. Um, but if you've seen the movie, you know that the climactic scene in the movie is when the Nazis soldiers, they decide they, they want to open the ark and they want to see what's inside that ark, right? And um, I'm not, I won't describe the scene for you. If, if you haven't watched the movie, you can, I'm sure it's been out so long it's probably fine on YouTube. Um, but everyone who looks inside the ark in that movie, they, they all ultimately die, right? And I'm not suggesting that the 70 people here in 1 Samuel, that they die in the same way that those people did in the movie, okay? That's, you know, that's where biblical accuracy leaves and um, artistic uh, license comes in. But the point remains, however, that there was, there was no reason at all for the men of Beth Shemesh to look upon the ark. They shouldn't have been doing so. They questioned or doubted the holiness of God when they looked upon the ark. And as a result, they bore the wrath of God against their sin. Verse 20 gives us a key insight to what I'm saying there. So this is after the 70 die. He says, Then the man of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And who... And to who shall he go up away from us? That phrase right there in the middle, this holy God, tells us a lot. The word we have translated there as holy, it's the same word that Hannah uses back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, in verse 2. And, and Hannah was using the word holy to describe and to worship God. To pay Him honor for being holy. But these men, on the other hand, they're using the word holy in a more derogatory fashion. They're like saying, this holy God. Their, worse, their, their use of the word holy here, it shows us that this is, actually, this is one of the low points. This is a, you know, the, the people of Israel, they ebb and flowed, ebb and flowed in their relationship with God. We, we are now at one of the low points in their relationship with God. It shows us here, by the way, that the time is ripe for Samuel's prophetic ministry. Samuel is going to make his entrance again in chapter 7 in a big way. But this low point, it also signals for us that it shouldn't come as a surprise for us that in just two chapters from now, the people of Israel are going to be begging for their own king. They don't want God anymore. They want their own king so they can be like other nations. The men of Beth Shemesh 
don't really know this holy God. He was just a byword to them. And so they send messengers to carry off Jerim so that they can come and get the ark for themselves. And that takes us to our final point, which is lamentation. See this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. In verse 1 of chapter 7, the men of Kiriath-Jerim, they come, to the, they come, they take the ark, they bring the ark to the house of Abinadab. Uh, they consecrate his son. To consecrate is to set apart as holy. They consecrate his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. But I want us to see two things happening in verse 2. Both of them are important, and they're happening at the same time. First, notice this. We're told that the ark was in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time. Specifically, he says, for a long time. For some 20 years. I've already touched on this in my first point, that God's timetable is, is rarely our timetable. You know, we live in an age of instant fixes. You know, we stand in front of our microwave ovens wanting them to hurry up and cook our food, right? Because we, we don't have the patience to wait. At least maybe that's, or maybe that's just me. Um, we get stuck in traffic, and my wife tells me that I'm one of the most patient persons she knows until I get in traffic. Um, and then I just get, it just like a switch goes off, and I get terribly impatient. All the while forgetting that, you know, generations ago, people didn't even have cars. I mean, if you wanted to go somewhere on a long trip, you're, you're talking about something that had taken you weeks or months to, to take a long trip somewhere. Now we can make those trips in a single day with a car. My point is, Oftentimes we, we illustrate by the way we live that we don't have a good grasp on time. You know, we want to grow into maturity, but we sure wish it would happen a lot faster than it's happening right now. Or we wish we could lose 10 pounds, and if we could do that maybe by this Friday, that would be wonderful, right? But God rarely works in that way. You see, God has a much grander view of time than we do. Whereas we measure, we measure time in seconds and minutes and hours and days and yes, even years. God measures times in epochs. Not in these little brief, but in epochs. Twenty years for God is a drop in the bucket. Here's what that means for us. Beloved, I want you to know that God is at work in us even when we don't see Him at work. He is at work in us, transforming us more and more into the image of His Son. We might not see it, but He is working from one degree of glory to another, the Scripture says. From one degree of glory to another, He's slowly transforming us. Like if I were to start on a journey toward that wall, and I told you it was going to take me 20 years to get there, you show up next week and it would look like, well, you haven't even moved yet. But I had. I've just moved so imperceptibly that you haven't noticed yet if it was going to take me 20 years to get there. God, God works that way, just slowly but surely. Second point I want us to notice, just spend a little bit of time on this phrase, it says, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. For, for 20 years, a long time, the house of Israel was lamenting after the Lord. What does that mean to lament? What does that mean? I'm, I'm relying on a pastor named Mark Brogop here. He wrote a book a couple years ago. It's a great book. I brought a copy to the pulpit here. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, uh, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Um, this is an awesome, awesome book. 
Happy to loan it out to anybody that wants it. Highly recommend it. It's well worth your time. But in, in his book, he describes lament as, quote, a loud cry, a howl, a passionate expression of grief. And he says that lament is a, it's a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Now, for the record, so apart from his book, for the record, lament plays an incredibly important role in the Bible. Roughly one-third of the Psalms, so there's 150 Psalms, one-third of them are Psalms of lament. And there's an entire book in the Old Testament called Lamentations, all right? So lament isn't some secondary or tertiary theme in the Bible. It's a major theme in the Bible. And when we lament in this biblical sense, we're learning how to trust God better. Let me quote one more time from the book, and then you can read the rest of it for yourself if you like. Uh, But he says this. um, He says, quote, Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we won't know how to process pain. Silence, bitterness, and even anger can dominate our spiritual lives instead. Without lament, we won't know how to help people walking through sorrow. Lament is how Christians grieve, unquote. And that's what's happening here at the end of our passage today. The people of Israel, they've gone through this flood of emotions. Imagine this, if you will. The last seven months of their life have been incredible. They've been soundly defeated by the Israelites. The ark of God was captured. Then seven months out of, later, out, out of nowhere, here come these two cows carrying the ark of, of God. And so they go from this incredibly low to this incredible high as they're rejoicing. And then, right there in the midst of that, 70 people get killed. The Lord kills them because they had violated the ark of God. And so they go from uh, losing the ark to seeing the ark. The 70 people die. I mean, just imagine this roller coaster of emotions in just a span of a very short period of time. It's been an emotional roller coaster for them. And so now they're lamenting. When we lament, it doesn't mean that we're not trusting God. But when we lament, it means that we don't understand what God is doing in the midst of our pain. Those people were lamenting. Why, God? Why did you kill these 70 people? They didn't understand. But they were trusting God in the midst of it. And so in lament, we, we address God. We, we talk to God. We share our heart in a complaint to God. We tell Him that we're hurting. I don't understand God. I don't understand why this is happening to me. But nevertheless, I trust You, God. I believe in You. But I'm hurting right now in the midst of this pain. That's where the people of Israel are. And that's where they're at, notice this, for 20 years. Now, that doesn't mean that they're stuck. God's still at work in their lives, slowly, again, sometimes imperceptibly changing them into the people that He wants them to be. Beloved, may we trust that He is likewise working in our lives even now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your grace and Your kindness. We thank You for the grace of lament. That when we don't understand why things are happening around us, that we can cry out to You. And You you may not give us answers right away, but we can cry nevertheless as we express our grief all the while expecting our tru- yeah, expressing our trust 
that You do all things well. Father, thank You for the glorious gift of repentance. When we sin, Father, help us to be quick to repent. Father, I pray that that we wouldn't have hard hearts that, that require months or sometimes even years of needless pain before we recognize and repent of our sin. Help us to be sensitive, Father, to the things of Your Spirit. For when we, when we go astray, help us to be sensitive, to love You well. And when You convict us of sin, help us to be quick to repent that we might be restored. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus. We thank You that it's through Jesus that we have the privilege of knowing You as our Father. What a glorious, glorious thing that is. Help us, Father, to love You well. Help us to recognize You as a holy God who desires to have a relationship with a fallen people. And so, Lord, we thank You and we love You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.